Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Union and agency managers at the Federal Housing Finance Agency are heading to the bargaining table for the first time ever. A large majority of FHFA employees voted to unionize last summer. Pay equity in a formal grievance process will be top of mind for what will eventually become a bargaining agreement. Here with more, Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. And let's begin with how this chapter, which union is it and how did it get started, Drew? FHFA decided to unionize with the National Treasury Employees Union, and this was an effort that has been going on for about two years now. You had a small group of employees at FHFA, which is a very small agency to begin with, of only about 700 employees. Uh, You had a couple of them kind of start the process of reaching out to different unions. Ultimately, they decided on NTEU and held their election during August 2023, so just last year. Uh, So it's been a couple months in the making now after they became an official bargaining unit at NTEU. Um, And they currently represent about 500 employees. Their president for the bargaining unit is Nathan Watkins, and he explained a little bit more. It was a wonderfully um, affirming, encouraging, uplifting result, 91%. But then there was so much work to do. And all of a sudden, we're we're, uh, bargaining the impact and implementation of certain policy changes and merit increases for the year. And we have a very small shop. Yeah, sounds like you got a tiger by the tail there. And so what are some of the concerns the employees had that led to the union drive in the first place? For the last couple of years, FHFA has seen a pretty significant drop in employee engagement in the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey, or FEVs. And uh, they've also seen their satisfaction with pay declining for a few years now. So I think you have some concerns just generally with the workforce at this really quite small agency. But in the most recent FEVs, they had a spike in their response rate, which also shows, I think, that you know people are wanting to speak up more or have their voices heard in the workplace. So that's kind of why. And another interesting point here, too, is this is actually the last uh, financial regulatory agency to unionize. So you have SEC, FDIC, all of those other ones already have unions, and this is the last one to, to follow suit here. But on the question of pay, I mean, aren't they in the GS system? So the pay bans are what they are. They are not in the GS system, actually. Ah. They're a non-appropriated agency, so you have the director who's able to have a little bit more discretion over pay, and that's actually one of the issues that uh, Nathan Watkins and other people in the bargaining unit are going to be looking at more closely here is this idea of pay equity. Uh, What he's said in the past is that when new employees come to FHFA, their salary from the private sector often sets their trajectory for their pay moving forward at the agency. That's something that the Office of Personnel Management has actually uh, banned recently, the idea that agencies can consider past salaries when they're hiring someone, but they're trying to get that pay equity a little bit better uh, moving forward. So not using past pay could mean not using higher past pay, for that matter. There's two edges to that knife. Right. Yeah. So, for example, if if you have someone who has a, a much higher salary, Yes, it's true. They might not necessarily get as much when they move to FHFA or whatever agency it might be. But then on the other hand, you have uh, people who, you know, oftentimes, more often than not, are women or people of color who have lower salaries in the private sector when they move into government. They There may be a tendency to ha- see lower salaries for them. So the idea is to kind of even the playing field moving into 
the federal sector. All right. And what does FHFA management say they want out of all of this? I think the feeling has been pretty positive from the FHFA management side. They're, you know, this is new for them too. And they said they want to work with employees and have different ways to gather feedback from them. So uh, they have the FEBS for one, but they also have engagement ambassadors and they have this online platform called IdeaScale. So they are already kind of on this track to get more feedback and make changes for employees. Um, as a result they, of this feedback from employees, they've talked about how they've added some time off for uh, wellness for, for workers there and giving some telework flexibility during the summer. But, you know, having Feb's results on hand going forward is going to be really important. And I spoke to Bob Stanton, who's FHFA's branch chief of performance management and total rewards. You know, we're looking forward to the upcoming Feb's, to be honest with you. It's, you know, we want to continue to learn from our employees. We want to continue to learn from the union and have that collaborative relationship with them. Uh, I think overall, I mean, we're optimistic for the future. And, you know, this is a new paradigm for us and we want to learn as much as we can. All right, so now they're all headed to the bargaining table. What are they going to talk about first? Sounds like pay and some sort of a process for when people are unhappy. That's pretty much it. So as I mentioned, the pay equity and that idea of establishing a more equal playing field for different employees at FHFA, that's going to be top of mind for sure. Um, And then the other thing that is going to be established through the bargaining process uh, is a uh, grievance procedure. So while you do have different ways to collect feedback or collect input from employees that are a little bit uh, less official, a grievance procedure and having that be established will help employees when they have actual uh, concerns with the agency to be able to bring those up to management and get them addressed. And Deborah Chu, who's FHFA's director of the Office of Equal Opportunity and Fairness, explained why that's important. It's a benefit to the agency as well, though, because, you know, we need vehicles and mechanisms to hear employee concerns and have those concerns help inform how leadership responds to employees and help inform our policy development process. Now, often, you know, in the big established agencies that have had unions for a long time, we've seen bargaining go on for two, three, five, seven years, you know, at Veterans Affairs and so on. What comes next? Are they going to start sitting down at a table in a room and get at it pretty quickly, do you think? What they've told me is the plan right now is to have a collective bargaining agreement in place by the end of this year. Uh, I don't know how that will compare to other agencies. They are pretty small, so maybe that will make a little bit of a difference in terms of the speed of things. Uh, But we'll see how quickly it'll take. I think they're not quite in negotiations yet, but they're heading in that direction pretty soon. And uh, Nathan Watkins, the NTEU chapter president, explained more. And hope that at some point in the near future, by the time contract negotiations begin, we'll just be fully formed and, and set up and, and able to operate as like a grown-up union chapter. It might be a bit of a pipe dream, but really getting a good night's sleep every night for a week would be a really good heuristic to show that we've pulled that off. Well, he sounds cheerful about the prospect, so maybe it'll happen when they hope. Yeah, we'll see. We'll just have to wait and see. All right. We'll know by the end of the year, Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Thanks so much. Thank you. And be sure to check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. 
Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected. And also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Now. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Right. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. 
So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it? And building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight... I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so... That was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people 
on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career. 
and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.